wow, 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 what an episode we have to bring you today. But before we can get there, there's a couple of sponsors I wanna bring to you. The first one is Live the Movement Conference, August 31st through September 2nd. Here is our good friend and prior guest on the podcast, Reverend Kenneth Carpenter. The Movement Conference is designed to present a balanced apostolic church and apostolic ministries. We are living in a day of extremism. And if there has ever been a time in the history of the church that we remain balanced, it is today. The Movement Conference will be blessed with the dynamic anointed preaching of Brother Jimmy Tony, Brother David Poole, Brother Matthew Ball, Brother Sam Emery, Brother Aaron Bounds, Brother J.H. Osborne, and Brother Raymond Woodward. Make plans now to be a part of the very first, The Movement. So I just got off the phone recently with Chad Erickson. He is also a part of that conference. He told us that the tickets are just about sold out of the early tickets and they're about to move on to the next phase of the higher registration fees. So if you're planning to attend, register now and do it to save livethemovement.org. Here are some more of our friends to tell you a little bit about their companies. Hello, Crucial Conversation listeners, pastors, youth pastors, leaders in your local church. My name is Corey Sanders, and I want to introduce you to God First Living. God First Living is a seminar that equips and teaches saints to balance business with blessings so they can succeed in both the secular and the spiritual to further the kingdom and be the best they can be in their local church. I have been a business owner since I have been 19 years of age, so 20 plus years of experience living the principles of God First Living. My workshops and seminars are to educate believers on how to take a passion and turn it into a thriving business that blesses you personally and the kingdom. Learn how to build a successful business and to be productive and powerful in your local assembly by living a balanced life. I will give your church body attendees practical tools backed by biblical principles that have allowed my family to live in the abundant blessing. Our mission theme at our church, Apostolic Center, is give and go. Some people can give and some can go. I wanted to be able to do both. And because of these God-first principles, I have the opportunity to go all over the country and all over the world in ministry. Because you can be successful in business and successful in the kingdom. It's learning how to balance and God First Living Principles will show you how. Anyone can do this. I only have an high school education, no business degrees, no businessman father that taught me the ropes, just a burden, started a business, learned to balance, and living in blessing. This is for every saint or entrepreneur that wants to step into blessing and be blessed personally and bless their local assembly by giving and doing more in the kingdom of God. It's not just inspirational talk, but a testimony of a desire to be more in the kingdom and live in the overflow by building a thriving business, a fruitful ministry, and a balanced life. For more information, go to my website, GodFirstLiving.com. Once again, GodFirstLiving.com. And I'll end with this. I live by the words of my friend and late missionary, Brother Steve Willoughby, who's spoken to my life. If you take care of God's business, he will take care of yours. God First Living. God bless. Hello, my fellow podcast listeners. It's Charity Sanders from Modest Direct here. I have been super excited to get a chance to connect with the Crucial Conversation listeners these past few months. ModestDirect.com specializes in women's clothing. I try to have a vast 
range of inventory that is changing and updating weekly. ModestDirect.com has a variety of styles. We have the Flannery Carpenter Collection that has been a huge hit for those that love the trendy new look. We have gorgeous dresses, pencil skirts, and unique tops that keep our customers coming back again and again. We are a five-star Google-rated company. Yay, Modest Direct! Customer service is my number one goal. We don't have anything on our website over $50. Modest Direct offers women's apparel in most styles from small to plus sizes. Follow us on Modest Direct on Instagram and like the Modest Direct Facebook page. I would just love to give you the opportunity to sign up for our email group at ModestDirect.com. We give exclusive chances to sales there and often release new inventory to the VIP email group first. Make sure and use the Crucial Conversation 21. That's Crucial Conversation 21 coupon code for 10% off your entire order. ModestDirect.com can't wait to hear from you and help you with all your shopping needs. I think it's crucial that you visit ModestDirect.com and we have a great conversation about all the modest clothing that you are going to love. God bless you. Wow, what some great sponsors we have. I am super excited to bring to you an episode that is full of passion and full of development. Guys, please enjoy this entire episode. You don't want to skip through or pass anything just because you don't think it's for you. Enjoy this episode of Reverend Raymond Woodward. Hey guys, this is Brian and I'm Tony and you're listening to the Crucial Conversation podcast. Today we welcome onto the podcast a very, very, very special guest. I'm very deeply honored that he would take his time uh, to come on our podcast. Um, the first time I ever heard you preach in person, Brother Woodward, uh, was it because of the times in 2017, and your message was not only very impactful for me myself, but you delivered it in such a way that you could tell that God had really been dealing with you about this sermon. I know it wasn't the first time. That you preach it, I believe you preach at the same year Impact Conference. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Yeah. So you you preach that sermon, but even as you're preaching it at because of the times, um, you were just overtaken with emotion, and that is one of my favorite things about a a preacher is somebody who is real and genuine. And bro, that is the the two words that I think describe you best is real and genuine. 
And thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. It's just me and you. Um, for you guys that's waiting for Brian's voice, he won't be here today. He got <laughs> called into work. But uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. You're most welcome. Uh, it, it's an honor. And I do aspire to those two words, real and genuine. And uh, I, I, uh, I think I've got a long way to go, but I'm, I'm working hard at it because I don't think that we can... Um, I don't think that we can impact other people with what we do, with the word, with pastoring, with leading, unless we are real and genuine. You've got to be absolutely comfortable in your own skin and, and let God use you, not try to be carbon copy of somebody else, I think. Exactly. You, you actually said a, a phrase in one of your uh, sermons. I don't remember which one it was, uh, but you said our movement needs less Pentecostal preachers and more apostolic apostles. And, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer and we need more of those guys that are just real because I, you guys have heard me on this podcast before say it. I would rather somebody tell me how they really are instead of how perfect their life is, because number one, it doesn't encourage me. It intimidates me. Yes, sir. And, and second of all, I don't believe them anyway. <laughs> so, but I'm super excited to have you on. Uh, we're going to get into that sermon that I, I just referred to quite a bit because, as I was telling you off the record, um, how it impacted me and, and what it's done to me and for me, uh, I think it could be very beneficial to some of our listeners. And uh, But before we get there, let's get to know you beyond the pulpit. A lot of people know you for, um, uh, as a matter of fact, if you YouTube Raymond Woodward, the last word that comes on is Raymond, Raymond Woodward Preacher. So everybody knows <laughs> Raymond Woodward slash Preacher. Tell us a little bit about you beyond the pulpit. Kind of tell us how you got involved in the church. Have you always been uh, in the apostolic movement? Tell us a little bit about who you are. Well, thank you for the opportunity to do that. You know, all of us, uh, we enter into other men's labors if we're in ministry at all. Uh, there's no self-made ministers, at least not in the apostolic faith, if they're doing it right. Uh Pentecost, the apostolic movement started in our family a hundred years ago, this past December, when my great uncle, a guy named Leonard Parent, received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Uh, that was, it rocked his world and the world of our family. To make a long story short, over the next few years, he went to Michigan, started a church there, um, but he kept coming back to New Brunswick every fall, and he would bring his family, and my dad was his nephew. And he taught my dad the Bible in dad's teenage years. Dad became a, a Christian, uh, had a Pentecostal experience. He and my mom got married. Uh, and so they brought us up in the church. I had a pastor before I knew, was old enough to know what a pastor was. Um, I never set out to do uh, ministry, though. Um, my dad was a high school principal most of my life. Um, teachings kind of in the blood. There was never an expectation or, or anything forced on me, but I just always looked at that as, you know, even when I was in school, I was the geeky kid that really loved school and certain subjects and whatever. <laughs> um, so I, a teaching was always kind of in the blood and it, and it was a passion of mine. Um, and, and so I was headed for university right out of high school, had a bunch of scholarships, I was going to do education and uh, just got sidetracked at the very last moment to Bible college. Uh, the Bible college here in, in our city, 
uh, now is a, a nice looking institution and whatever back then it was. And it was like <laughs> old style. The dorms would scare you. Um, but I really felt called. And I, I, I remember uh, having a conversation with God, uh, a pretty intense conversation saying, okay, I'll give up what I want and do what you want, because that's really what it came down to. I thought I'm giving up teaching and I'm giving up what I wanted to do. And so I went to Bible college, just got out, went back there and taught for a few years, became an assistant pastor right out of Bible college. And Brother Tony, I was an assistant pastor for the first, I've been in ministry in round numbers around 40 years. I was an assistant pastor for the first 20 years and loved it and thought I was good at it and was kind of irritated with God when he kicked me upstream to be a senior pastor. And that's been the last 20 years. And I'll say one more thing. Uh, and there's so much you could say when you introduce yourself. Uh, I'm a, a husband to a wonderful lady named Beverly. Uh, I'm a father to, to Emily and Matthew. They're both married. Each of them have two precious little girls. So I've got four granddaughters. There's all of that. But I'll say one more thing. Uh, somewhere along those years when uh, I started to travel and minister, not just in America or Canada, but around the world, I was somewhere in a hotel room overseas. I don't even remember where, but I remember it was overseas. Uh, could have been Singapore, could have been Australia. I don't know where. And the Lord doesn't speak to me audibly. That would freak me out. But, he, you know, this very strong impression, kind of the voice of God to me as I understand it and feel it. He said, so you gave up teaching for me, did you? And I just, it stunned me because I've had the privilege of teaching uh, in Singapore, China, Australia, Pakistan, India, uh, goodness, Guatemala, Brazil, um, all through Europe. Um, just like, you know, you give up what you think is your big plan for your life. And God gives it back to you like a thousandfold. And so that's me. I'm passionate about uh, mentoring young leaders. I'm passionate about teaching. Um, I'm passionate about missions. That's basically me in a nutshell. Um, and I get to pastor a, a great group of people on the side kind of thing. So you briefly touched on it, but one of my favorite uh questions that we ask to a lot of our guests. It's a recurring question. And it's my favorite question that we always ask everybody. And it's the only one that we actually recur. But okay. it's everybody's is different is why I like to ask it. You said you don't hear God's voice audibly. How do you hear God's voice? Uh, I, I use the word impression. It's just a strong, insistent, internal push towards something that won't let up. Um, it happens sometimes in service. It will be, you know, uh, you know, you need to direct a service uh, this way. And a lot of times, especially if it's kind of out there, uh, I'll just kind of pause on that and we'll continue to worship and I'll continue to feel that out. Uh, but it won't, it won't let up. The, the other thing that I think is really key for me, and I've done this many times in my life, and I, I recommend it to young leaders, um, that a lot of times my prayer isn't, uh, God, uh, show me which door to walk in, because I don't get those kind of answers very much, uh, to be honest. Uh, my prayer has always been, God, I've sought counsel. 
I'm, I'm in line with your word to the best of my knowledge. Uh, my elders are okay with this. The voices that are in my life are okay with this. This is the best decision I can make using every bit of common sense you've given me, every bit of Bible knowledge, and I'm being submitted. And here's what I often have prayed. God, if I'm not supposed to do this, block it. I'm, I'm willing for you to block it. I won't get an attitude. I won't be mad. Uh, I won't stomp off. I won't sulk. You block it. I'm willing for you to block it. And I need you to block it if it's not right. And, and just today, I was listening to something online. And I can't remember what or where. Uh, but but uh, this, this guy said, um, you know, he was talking about his call into the work of God, not an apostolic guy, but he said, you know, people often assume that, you know, they go to church and they sit for all of their life and they learn and they learn and they learn and they learn. And they kind of say to God, well, God, um, if you open the door, I'll walk in. If you open the door. And he said, I've always been the opposite of that. He said, I've always just gone. This was a guy with a missionary ministry. He said, I've always just gone everywhere. And I've always prayed, God, if you don't want me to go there, you slam that door and I'll stay put. But he said, I just assumed since the Great Commission involves go, I just assumed that I was supposed to go through every door that opened unless God shut it. And I think that's a really cool way to look at things. That's awesome. Absolutely. So you, I want to ask you kind of, this is a gateway question. Uh, I want to kind of ask you how you prepare uh, for a sermon, um, how you, what, what you go through and what you're doing. Um, this is, this is not a leadership podcast. Um, all of those who are new, just listening to this episode, just because you found this guest, um, our podcast is not about leadership. And if you listen to some prior episodes, you'll understand that very quickly. Um, but we, we talk about stuff. Um, that's that's relevant that doesn't get talked about. But the reason I'm asking this question is because I want to kind of dig into um, what you presented before your colleagues and before guests and visitors at Because of the Times 2017. It was very, very apparent that you were very passionate about what you were presenting to, to the conference. And uh, it's, it's a message that still gets talked about, that is still... Um, personally one of my absolute favorites but how do you how do you get um your your messages and what do you do to prepare them i know because that you you kept saying in the message we're going to be talking about that you weren't talking to anybody specifically but you were talking to everyone mm-hmm. kind of tell 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 us a little bit about how you develop um a sermon that you're dealing with such a a deep burden Hmm, that's a great question. Uh, I'll take a, <laughs> my best stab at it. You know, first of all, I think BOTT, because of the times, is its own animal. Um, anytime that you have the responsibility of speaking to other pastors, preachers, leaders, missionaries, oh my goodness, that's a, a heavy responsibility in itself, at least when you're me. That's not something that I just think, oh, yay, I get to do that. That burden is heavy because you feel the responsibility that when, and I feel the same responsibility, by the way, when I have the opportunity to teach overseas, because uh, in, in one country, I did something that they call echo seminars, which is we all teach, everybody that was on the team, 
we teach the superintendents of all the districts in this nation. And then they go back <laughs> and they the teach everything all over again. So my goodness, you feel the weight, like this is going to be replicated and duplicated and repeated. And so, you know, I, I always feel that, especially with those audiences, with the local church or with a, a local church service, maybe somewhere else, uh, the, the weight is there. Uh, but in a different way. There the weight is people's individual lives and them wrestling with what God wants them to do, uh, you know, getting saved, uh, getting called, getting involved, whatever that particular message is. So there's a weight there, but it's an individual uh, weight. You're speaking to individuals about their lives. When you speak to leaders or when you speak to an audience where, you know, they're going to go and maybe take that or, or it's going to change them so that it changes their leadership. I think the weight is magnified a little bit. That being said, the process is still similar, uh, if, if not identical. First of all, uh, I've got to feel something for that service or that message and that doesn't come to me, again, very, I, I may not be on the same level of spirituality as other people, but God doesn't stop me in my tracks and here's what you're supposed to preach next Wednesday night. <laughs> that never happens to me. You what wish happens, it would, though. Oh, you know what? If it did, it would make my life exponentially easier. It'd be wonderful. Um, but I live in a, <laughs> I live constantly in this fear like, When's this booming voice going to occur? You know, it's a, that's just never happened to me. And I'm not making light of that. You know, there are people that say, you know, they they hear God speak to them. And I believe that it happened in the Bible. So anything that happened in the Bible, uh, we, we have the right to expect it today. I'm just saying it doesn't happen to me. What happens to me is in, in, in prayer, in meditation, uh, in, in reading the Bible or in listening to somebody else preach or minister, listening to something online, I have this running list of thoughts. Um, it's, uh, you know, it used to be on paper uh, and now it's, it's in the notes or it's in Evernote or whatever. And, and so it can sync up across devices. So I've always got something with me uh, and I still do write something down once in a while, but I've always got something with me that I can record some impression, some thought, whatever. And, and that's a wonderful thing for a pastor that has to preach often, because if I get into a dry spell, I can go back and I can zap down through that. I may not preach anything on that list. Uh, I may not preach any of those little seed thoughts, but they inspired me once before. God spoke to me once before. And so just reading over brings all these emotions and feelings and direction and, and inspiration back. And so that's kind of my go-to unless I'm reading and it's like, oh, wow, that's for this week. Unless that happens, I'm, I'm kind of a, uh, like a long ramp guy. So the message you're referring to, um, that just, I, I was actually teaching through the book of First Samuel. And it was a long series. I can't remember. It might be like 14 parts. I can't remember. It was a long one for us. And uh, I just loved it. It was like a Wednesday night uh, series, I think. And, and so I'm teaching through. And this one little throwaway verse about the king sitting, it's Saul sitting at his seat, and it describes his table. It describes the people that are sitting there, and it just like, wow, 
like something's wrong with Saul's table. The people that are closest to him are dangerous or they're out of place. And the people that should be right there should be a voice. They're gone. They're, they're, some of them don't even have a seat anymore at his table. And so that came about just in pastoral ministry, slogging through this, this, this long series, going verse by verse through First Samuel of all books. And, you know, so I taught it to the church. But I knew as soon as I hit it, Brother Tony, I knew that this is way bigger than a Wednesday night Bible study, yes. one verse out of a lesson. And so, again, I just put it away. I had no idea at that point I was going to be preaching at BOTT um, or at Impact. And Impact came first, and then Pastor heard about it, and he said, I want you to preach at BOTT 2017, what you preached at Impact over in uh, Columbia in 2016. So I um, want to ask you something about that. Yeah. So you 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 preached that at Impact, right? Yes, and sir. so whenever your bishop, Brother Mangan, asked you to preach that at his conference, um, preachers typically, most preachers, let's say most preachers, don't typically preach for a reaction. But the reaction that you got was you you knew you were in the vein of the will of the Lord because of the the response that you were getting not only from that that very moment but from the impact that it's still having. But whenever someone asks you, "Hey, bro, you preached that awesome sermon at Impact. Will you preach this at my conference?" What do you, is is there something that you've got to do to prepare yourself to to get into that? Well, I've already preached that once. I don't know if it'll be right for this crowd. Uh you know what? I'm an odd duck with that. Uh, we've got a couple of, of, of currents that float through our, our movement. And I'm on the odd side of, of both currents. Me too, bro. <laughs> well, well, there we go. Current number one, and this is old. Um, we are primarily and have been for, for most of our history, and there's nothing wrong with this. It's, it's just what it is. We are a movement of preachers not so much teachers. Um, so when I started in ministry, I got out of Bible college in 1983. All of my friends that I graduated with, they went off to an assistant pastor, pastor in a church, whatever, preacher, 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 preacher. And I've still got this teaching thing in my head. My, my style of ministry is not really what I would call preaching. Um, and, and, and to define the difference, um, Preaching to me is the anointed declaration of truth. Preaching confronts. Preaching brings you to a moment of decision. Teaching is the flip side of that coin. It's the anointed explanation of truth. So teaching gives you anointed information. Uh, right now at the church, I'm doing a series on prayer. Um, and, you know, it's, it's wonderful to see in our little church private Facebook group some of the comments because it's really helping people to see that prayer is a relationship with God. It's not something spooky. It's only not only for, you know, highly spiritual people, it's for everybody. So, you know, I'm a teacher. I, I, I get ramped up about explaining things from the word of God. And when I was young in ministry, I was always the odd man out. That was really weird. Um, and so for years, I was a behind the scenes player at the church, a player in a literal sense, because I started doing music ministry, uh, you know, 40 years ago. And, uh, you know, I didn't have, I, I can count, I assisted 
uh, actually here at the church that I pastor now, I assisted here for eight years and I can count on one hand. I don't even need all the fingers. Uh, the number of times I was asked to preach during that eight years, the first eight years of my ministry. It just didn't happen because I was a teacher. I, I, I come at it a little more low key and, and whatever. But here's what I've learned over time is that over time, I've just developed this confidence in the word to work. So I don't have to come at it a million miles an hour. Uh, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but you know, it doesn't take that. If, if it's your personality to go a million miles an hour and a thousand decibels a minute, go for it. That's, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be on my feet. I'm going to be cheering you on. But that's not me. Preaching or teaching is truth through a personality. If I do that, I'm faking. If I do that, I'm pretending. If I do that, I'm imitating. And I can't do that. So, you know, I, I get ramped up. If I get really agitated about a verse, I'll let him have it. But until that moment, I'm just going to explain and teach and expound the word of God, knowing that somewhere in that message, it's going to blow up because the word is powerful. If I'm not in the building, the word is powerful. So I have enough confidence. So that's one current in our movement that I think I was on the, the wrong side. It's been really encouraging to me, probably especially over the last seven or eight years of my ministry. I've had guys call me and say, I need you to come to our church or our district or our mission field. We need a teaching revival. I never heard that when I started out. Uh, but the last best part of a decade, it's like, you know, pastors will call and say, now I, I've got an evangelist kind of ministry. Um, so I'm okay with that, but I need somebody to come in and teach. And I got to tell you, that has been wonderful because I feel like maybe we're coming back to a little bit of balance because mm -hmm. you need both. Preaching is the reach of the church. Teaching is the strength of the church. And the growth and, and, for me. And, and growth, it's growth for believers. So, you know, you need both of those. So that's one little current that I started out, you know, kind of with my head underwater. And over the years, I've, I've seen that kind of flow around a bit and it's it's come back to balance. Here's another, and this one's still ongoing. Um, and and it, I don't think it's too major, but I see it and I meet up with it at conferences and I hear dialogue about it. And that is this business that if you use um, sermon notes, <laughs> that, that somehow that's not anointed or that's, uh, oh my goodness, there, there's still this, this tension in our movement about that. And again, I think I'm probably on the <laughs> wrong side of that river because um, I use notes. In fact, I, I really came to it. I used to do like, when I started out preaching, I used bullet point notes. And, you know, so my, my bullet point would be dog story. Well, a year later, I couldn't remember what dog story meant, let alone 10 years later. So years ago, I intentionally became what I call a manuscript preacher. There are times when I'll just wing it, um, but they're very, very rare and few and far between. I, I actually uh, write out my sermon word for word. I figure if God can set up creation uh, 6,000 years ago and, and put us in a garden and watch history unfold, 
I figure he can probably give me something today that I can write down for next Sunday or a week from Wednesday night. I figure he can probably work that much in advance. So I, I write out everything. Now we're, we're talking about that particular message. One of the reasons in those settings I write out things is because I don't want to just stumble and bumble my way into something that could be controversial. I want to think what I'm going to say. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I want to know that it's good. And, and I, I, I'm old school. I'm a, I'm a geek. I, I'm a teacher. I use a thesaurus when I prepare a message. I, I don't want to say exciting 72 times <laughs> in four paragraphs. So it's exciting, enthusiastic, amazing, wonderful, awesome. You know, I, I, I actually feel like when I put a message together, I want to give the best. God gave me this brain. It's not the best brain in the world, but it's mine. And, and I want to do the best I can to craft something that if somebody reads it, uh, Tony, when I, when I read over some of the messages I've preached, they bring me to tears. It's been five years ago. They bring me to tears because I can still remember. So uh, I, I'm, my answer is too long, but let me say one more thing. No, it's um, great. The, the, one of the reasons I'm a manuscript preacher, and I know there's guys that think that's like anathema, like, you know, you're accursed if you use sermon notes. I disagree. I'm really grateful that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, James, I'm glad they all left us their sermon notes. I really am thankful for that. So I, I, I respectfully disagree. But, but looking at uh, what I do, a manuscript is way more useful to me later on. I can go back to something I taught on the new birth or the book of Esther or Genesis or whatever. And years later, I can retrieve it and it's useful to me. But not only that, there are hundreds of home missionary pastors who I, I one of the reasons I started doing manuscript is because you keep hearing from these people. And then there's, there's people overseas, our national pastors in all these countries, they don't have resources to, to libraries and books like you and I do, because in their language, those books haven't been printed yet. They haven't been translated. So if they can get some of us that are apostolic in our doctrine, if they can get some of the things that we've pulled together, because we all use these resources, my goodness, it's more useful to them, not just to me. So uh, that's why I do what I do. So I, I went way off track and I'm so sorry, but pulling back to that message, when I went there, I had every word written down. I want it to impact. I don't want to be controversial. Some guys love that. I hate that. Um, I, I, I want it to, to land exactly the way God gave it to me. So that's why. So we, we've learned how God speaks to you, and we've heard how you kind of orchestrate it down. Um, I want to, for the, for the remainder of our podcast, uh, I want to um, take a shovel out now and dig a little bit. Uh, if this doesn't benefit anybody, it's going to benefit me. Um, but you, we, we've, we've kind of hinted around um, your sermon that I wanted to really talk about who is sitting at your table. And this sermon, um, you use um, Saul as your canvas on what you're going to prepare or paint your sermon on. And you, you tell the story about Saul and what, what he's doing and who's he's surrounded by. And in the beginning of Saul's ministry, he was a selfless, 
Um, you had kind of had to drag him into ministry when he didn't yes. want to. Uh, he didn't want to be the center of attention. Everything changed. And you, you kind of talk about who he's surrounded by. And, uh, you know, God sent him certain people. But before we, we get into that, and I, I've kind of I've got notes on on my laptop here. Um, some of them are new notes. Some of them are notes that I took while I was down there at the conference. And um, I want to just um, just kind of dig, if, if you don't mind, for a little sure. while. Um, so I'm going to just ask these questions. You'll know what I'm talking about. And a lot of the people that have heard this sermon will know what I'm talking about. But when I ask you these questions, give us some contact context about what I'm talking about sure. and kind of share um, uh, what, what, what's going on. So the first thing I, I want to ask you is Saul's table failed. Why? Yes. <clears throat> well, let, let's go back to the beginning. The verse is actually first Samuel 20 and 25. And the King sat upon his seat as at other times, even upon a seat by the wall. Jonathan arose, Abner sat by Paul's Saul's side, and David's place was empty. So, so just the bird's eye view of the table here. I, I think we're meant to notice this. The Bible doesn't say anything accidentally or even incidentally. So Saul is in his usual place. So this isn't a one-off. This is where he normally sits. The King James says he's at uh, as at other times. This is the way he always sits at his table. Uh, his cousin Abner, who's the army's commander in chief, is sitting beside him. That's unusual because that should be his son Jonathan, the crown prince of Israel. But the Bible says Jonathan arose. That means Jonathan is sitting opposite of his father, not by his side. David's place is empty. And one more character that just it hollers at me where's Samuel? The prophet that anointed Saul, where is he? Like, he doesn't even have a chair. David's place is empty, but Samuel doesn't even have a place. So when I look at Saul's table here, Saul's family is out of whack. That's Jonathan. Saul's got a political, a politician uh, who's only in it for himself. That's Abner. Um, he, he doesn't have David, the man after God's own heart, the worshiper. And, and not only that, Samuel, the elder's voice, He's been gone out of Saul's life so long that there's not even a seat. It's it, You don't even notice that the elder's gone anymore because he doesn't even have a seat. At least with David, there's an empty chair, not with Samuel. So, so to me, that's why Saul's table failed. He surrounded himself with the wrong people. His family's out of whack. Uh, he doesn't have a good relationship with his son, Jonathan. You see that when, when the tension arises over David. Uh, he, 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 he's, he's fixated by Abner. And Abner, uh, he, he dies as a fool. Like he, Abner is a politician. He's only in this for what he can do for himself. David, the guy that could be, Saul could have set David up to be the next king of Israel. And instead, God had to interrupt Saul's plan and, and do that himself. And, and then finally, the, the, the big one, and the one I started with in the message, uh, you know, I kind of introduced Saul, but then I wanted to talk about Samuel because yeah, to so me, we're, it, we're lacking elders. Exactly. So God sent Samuel. Um, and so just like us today, why is it so important to have an elder in your life? Two, two reasons, I think. There's a hundred reasons. Here's my two. Number one, experience. 
there is no substitute for experience. We say that in the business world, we say that in ministry, but it is so true. Um, somebody like you in your age, you outsmart a guy like me just by breathing. Uh, you're, you're, you're technologically savvy. You've grown up with the internet. You've grown up with technology. So, so there's so many ways in which you are just smarter than your elders, just to, to say it as bluntly and plainly as possible. But the one way that you and I aren't smarter than our elders is life experience. When you're talking about a person that's been in ministry 60 years or had a marriage that lasted 55 years or whatever, they've got life experience that you can't get any other way but experience. So that's the one, the first big thing that elders bring to us. But the second is probably more important. The second thing elders teach us that nothing else can is submission. Um I am at this uh, stage in my life, I'm, I'm due to be 59 in just uh, a few weeks. Uh, at this stage in my life, I am not looking for less accountability. I, I'm looking for more accountability. So I, I've pulled elders into my life that, that I make myself accountable to. I think in this generation, you know, we are rugged individuals. We, we're, we're independent. We're, we're, we're independent thinkers and actors. And that is spiritually dangerous and sometimes spiritually suicidal. So elders bring us experience, but they also bring us uh, submission. They teach us submission. And if we will open our heart to that, there's, there's a huge blessing there. So in some of my original notes that I wrote from your sermon was you were talking about you, you used to be a bullet point preacher, note taker. Um, yes. So I had a bullet point in my phone that you said elders are like police. Yes. Explain well, pastor that. was pastor was sitting in the front row. So, <laughs> you know, and that that now that wasn't in my notes, I will confess that was just what I think I might have had the reference to police, but you know, but but I think how it came across, if I remember, because I vividly remember that. I think I even walked down and pointed at him or something. Uh, you know, when when pastor walks into a room, or when he calls, or if he's come here to preach, or if I'm there with him, I'm just checking myself all over. It's like you know, the police Make sure pull you over. Perfect. Everything's got to be right because pastors learned. Uh, more. He's probably forgotten more than I'll ever learn. He's certainly done more for the kingdom than I ever have a hope of doing. He's, he, he's, he's just, uh, it's amazing. And, and so uh, that, that makes me uh, not in a terrorized way, not in, in some kind of weird, like, you know, I'm less that it's, it's not that at all. It's that your pastor, that pastoral voice in your life, if you do it right, you want to be accountable to them. So he has a right, and he, he's done it a couple of times, nothing major. Uh, but, you know, I'm not going to go around the country saying to young leaders, you need to be submitted to your pastor if I'm not submitted to my pastor. Um, there were a couple of times um, we just ended up preaching camp meetings uh, together. And he usually kind of flies in, you know, maybe I was doing the Bible teaching all week long and he flies in for the last couple of nights and it was so good to be with him and so good to hear him and, and whatever. And, and so this happened a couple of times, if I remember right, like on Thursday afternoon, he would say, Raymond, tomorrow, I want you to change your flight 
and I want you to fly home and be with Beverly and the kids. Um, it's like, no, pastor, I want to hear you preach. Like, I don't, I don't ever get to hear you in person. We live in different countries for heaven's sake. So I want to be here and hear you preach. And plus it's going to cost a lot of money to change my ticket. Nope. I want you to go home, be with Beverly and those kids. You've been on the road. Well, so I spent some money and, and I changed my ticket and I went home and I was probably a little bit ticked off. I wanted to hear pastor preach two nights, not just one. But again, it, it, that's such a minor thing. But I want that in my life. I, I want my submission to be tested every Absolutely. once in a while. So, if it's not, I'm, I'm a law to myself. That was Saul. My first in encounter with Anthony Mangan was he, uh, well, face to face was he was preaching at Arkansas camp meeting, I think, the year had to be 2015 or 16 and I was playing the drums at the Arkansas campground. Have you ever been to the Arkansas campground? I have been. Yep. It's been so, a few you years, know, right behind the platform, there's a, like a little calm or like a little meeting. A green room. room. Yeah. 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 So I, after, after he got done preaching and uh, things were just starting to sell down out, out front, I caught him before he was going out the back door to his cabin. Um, and I said, brother Megan, I'm so happy. He looked at me and said, stop my God, son is your daddy a pastor? I said, yes, sir. He said, call him right now. I looked at my watch. I said, bro, it's like 1040. You know, he's going to be in bed. You don't live here. He's like, call him anyway. I don't care. So I called him and uh, dad answers the phone all groggy. Hello. And I was like, dad, um, I've got Bishop Mangan here wanting to talk to you. And he snatches that phone from me and he says, the, the, the mantle that you've been building for so long, I'm about to put it on your son right here, right now, hung up the phone and put it down, oh my laid goodness. his hands on me and started speaking into my life wow. and then slapped me on the back and said, go change the world. Just turn around and walk off. I was like, I <laughs> That's just, fast. I just wanted to stick your hand. <laughs> but, uh, he, talk about having elders in your life that's yep. willing to, to take that that step and, and just pray that into a, just a complete stranger's life changed my life forever. That's, you know, awesome. that's something I'll never forget. And I told you off the record and some of our listeners that listen to other episodes um, know that the week before Thanksgiving, I lost my father yes. uh, due to COVID. And you were talking about the importance of needing an elder at your table. And my father was one of three elders that occupy a seat at my table. And um, even though we didn't live in the same state or attend the same church or anything like that, he had 100% full veto power in my yes, life sir. and in my ministry. And anytime I, I had questions, I knew that I could always find at least one unbiased person. And yeah. it wouldn't always be the things I wanted to hear or the things that I needed to do, but it's typically usually the right thing. But Saul, you made this statement that Saul lost his elder before he had to, which, first of all, for someone who's lost an elder in their life, um, not by choice. Right. You want to just strangle Saul for that. Yes. You know, because you you, I I lost my father at the age of 30. And I, I said to myself, I'm way too young to be without a father. Wow. wow. And, um, you know, Saul just kind of pushed that out of his life. Um, and the only time that they were reunited was in Saul's death. Exactly. And um, so I lost mine due to death, unlike Saul did. What does somebody like me uh, need to do 
to fill the qualifications of an elder for a seat at our table. Because I can't be the only one that's lost. Uh, no, someone no. Is. We, we've all lost elders. Uh, you know, COVID, it's been just a weird year. Uh, of course, it's over a year now, but it's been just a, such a weird year. And we have lost many of our elder voices during the last year. But even the last five years, uh, my goodness, it seems like so many of our elders have slipped away from us. And, and for a, a couple of things. First of all, you can't fill that particular voice. It, it, it's never going to be the same. And I hate to say that, but it's true. You know, you lost your dad just before Thanksgiving. Um, I lost my dad uh, this past year, not from COVID, uh, but in September. Now, my dad was older than uh, your dad, and I'm older than you. So it's a loss. My dad was uh, coming up to 84. He would have been 84 just a few days after he passed. And so, you know, he lived a long, full life, and I'm grateful. But my dad was an important voice. Now, my dad wasn't a pastor. He wasn't in ministry, uh, but he worked faithfully at our church in the finance department. Our team dreadfully misses him. Our church misses him. And uh, he, he was just such a, a, a kind of a larger than life presence. So I can't replace my dad's voice. If something happened to pastor, God forbid, I can't replace his voice. But at that point, you look for, you know, the, the void. Pastor filled a role in my life that my dad couldn't fill because my dad was never in pastoral ministry. There would be things that I would deal with that my dad would have really no knowledge about or no perspective on. My dad taught me life lessons. Pastors taught me ministry lessons. And then there are other elders, I, I think, uh, Brother Tony, there are other elders in my life that, you know, maybe for one area, there, there was a precious man in our district, Robert Foster. Now, Brother Foster was uh, older than me. I worked with him at the Bible College here years ago. He actually came and pastored CCC, our church, for about three months as an interim just before I came here to be lead pastor in 2001. And a great godly man. Now, Brother Foster would call me because he would see stuff happening in the world and say, you know, Brother Woodward, what, what in the world is going on with this? And some moral issue or some new trend in society. And because of his generation, he wouldn't have any perspective. So he wasn't an elder to me in those areas. But that man knew how to pray. That man knew how to love people. That man could entwine himself with the people at our church still fondly remember him. His wife's still living and she comes and visits once in a while. And we just love on Sister Foster because, you know, he entwined himself with our people. Uh, his generation was like that. So he was an elder to me in certain specific areas. And I, I would say that to you, that nobody is going to replace your dad. But there are certain areas that maybe your dad taught you, mentored you in. He was an example to you in. And it may be that you need two or three elders to replace what he was to you. And it's not replace in the sense of, you know, uh, you replace and you never look back. He always will be that, that elder in that role. And I, I think it's so important. And like I said, I'm not looking for less accountability at this stage in my life. I'm looking for more uh, people that can uh, feed into me, uh, keep me accountable. Um, the longer you live, and everybody says this, but 
I don't know if anybody really believes it until they get to be like 60 years of age. The longer you live, the you finally figure out that, you know, like I, I didn't know very much about pastoring. I went to Bible college. I was an assistant pastor for nearly a decade. I actually known for two decades in two different churches. Um, I didn't know anything about pastoring. I'm still not sure that I do. Um, and I try to learn from all kinds of people, but elders are, are, you know, I learned from pastor Jack. He's, he's our associate pastor soon to become our, our lead pastor and a great man of God. Uh, we've worked together for nearly 30 years and I learned stuff from him, but an elder is special. Uh, somebody that's further along than you on the journey of life and in ministry those are just irreplaceable voices. They should never be replaced, but we can compensate for their loss. And I think that's what we have to do. So you were, uh, I, I hate referring to just everything that you say, but there's so much that I, I want to just keep digging into. But when my wife called me on her lunch break, all she got out was, hello. And I said, so I got to tell you everything here. And I just took off like a jackrabbit because <laughs> I was just unloading on her just what my heart was so full of what we were going to be talking about today. And the same thing with my grandmother. I called her. Uh, she she just got the second ramifications of everything that was going on. <laughs> I was just like telling her everything that was going on. But you you said uh, that um, sometimes you you are not a prophet, nor do you come from... Um, a prophet family, I believe is how exactly. you said it. Um, yeah. But there, there's times in your life that you want people that are kind of intimidating to come and speak into your life and say, thus saith the Lord. Yes, and for, for me, I, not because I'm living uh, per se in sin, but because I'm very careful on um, who speaks into my life. Yes. Um, because I don't want just anybody speaking into my life. Um, that's why I wanted to ask you, you know, how do you fill that seat? Uh, because I don't want just any voice at my table. I want the right one. And that leads me into talking about why you don't want an Abner at your table. Well, you know, the Abner question is actually fairly elementary for me. I don't want, I don't like Pentecostal politicians. I don't like them wherever I see them. Uh, something in me and I believe it's the Holy Ghost just rises up and just pushes back. Somebody that I feel has an agenda. Um, here, a couple things I look out for. One is if they're all about themselves. Uh, you know, it's always about where they've preached and what they're doing and their church and their ministry and whatever. I, I, I sat down beside one. Uh, I, I've served on the executive board uh, of the UPCI for uh, a dozen years or so. And I'm, I'm the odd duck on a lot of stuff. I, because I'm from Canada, that role can succeed itself. But everybody else, uh, the other six executive presbyters from the U.S., they rotate every two years. So every couple of years, that whole board changes, except for like the head table and, and me. I'm always stuck back in the corner, the, the token Canadian, you know. <laughs> but, but one I young man. you the loony or the toonie? Uh, you know what? I'm definitely the loony. Uh, there's not enough of me to be a toonie. So I'm a loony. Uh, your listeners will have no clue, um, nor should they. The um, 
this young guy, good young guy, uh, you know, because these executives get elected from all over our fellowship and they're not typically superintendents or, you know, whatever. They're, they're just great men. This young guy uh, and young guys get on that board every once in a while. So he's young to me. Uh, he sits down beside me. It's his first meeting. And he leans over to me and he may have just been nervous or making conversation or small talk. And he says to me, um, we are the UPC. You know, we are making the decisions. We are now running the show. We are the executive board. And I thought, you know, a couple of things. Number one is, buddy, you and I have a very different perspective. Uh, and number two, you're going to be gone in two years. So th this really isn't like a hostile takeover. Uh, people like that. And, I, you know, I, they just freak me out because to me, kingdom work is about serving. It's about giving. It's about, uh, you know, here we're in the right up against uh, a pastoral succession here. Uh, pastor Jack will take over uh, as lead pastor at the end of this month, and I'm going to move into, you know, what our constitution calls a bishop role. Uh, I'm not going to be called bishop, I don't think. I'm going to be called our teaching pastor, which, as you can imagine, I really think that's awesome. Uh, but people that are all about themselves, they're always talking about their ministry and their gifting, and that, that I, I, I just, something disconnects. Uh, you know, but it's not just that. It's also people that are always talking about somebody else. They've always got an ax to grind. They've always got an attitude. They're always mocking somebody, saying something critical, um, maybe discounting what God's doing through their ministry. Uh, it becomes very obvious very quickly that they've got unforgiveness or bitterness or jealousy or something in their heart. Those two people, the, the people that are all about them or they're fixated on somebody else, uh, those people are the Abners that come waltzing into our lives. And they are only for themselves. They can pretend they're for you. They can pretend they're your friend. They can pretend they're interested. But if you're around them very long, you'll, you'll figure that out. And, and the reason is because whoever's politically at the top See, when, when, when Saul's gone, Abner's going to now be David's buddy. David mm. was smart enough to see through that. And there are people that just kind of whoever's cresting the popularity wave, they want to be their best friend. They're hitting them up on social media. They're full of compliments. They're whatever. That's so shallow and so worldly. You know, we, we got a pretty good sense on what's worldly when it comes to modesty and godliness and holiness. Sometimes I feel like we don't have any sense on what's worldly when it comes to attitudes and when it comes to, you know, how we interact yes. with each other. That's a worldly mentality when I'm trying to ride your reputation to further my own. That's that's just it's crazy. When you said I don't need you to have my back, I need you to have my heart. Yes. Bro. Yes. Oh, my exactly. word. Yeah. I, yeah. Because I, I've got my back. I just right. want somebody exactly. with the right heart to be in my life. Absolutely. I mean, it's yep. there is another thing that was said that um, I, I, I've really uh, awakened my eyes and makes me want to change the way that I, I father my daughter and my and my son that's on the way. Um, 
there was a, a, another phrase that was in the sermon that says, God doesn't want any more dead animals on the altar with no obedience in the heart. And so we don't necessarily um, have the uh, living Monday through Saturday with an obedient heart. And then on Sunday, you go through that perfect motion. So um, our Pentecostal rituals aren't in question. Hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're so perfect at being um, that Sunday saint is the way I like to call it. Yes, yeah. uh, we know how to do everything. So nobody questions anything, but we could be falling apart on the inside. We have no um, obedience to what God's trying to do. You know, I, my the church that my father pastored is still without a pastor. They're kind of sifting through different uh, avenues, trying to find the perfect person to come in and fill that role. And my grandma, she today, she said, if I could just ask one God, God one question, I would say, what's taking so long? Hmm, and I yeah. said, grandma, I never talked to anybody or no, would never talk to you this way, but never, ever question God's God's timing. He's always yeah. been right on time. And so many times, especially I'm going to speak for myself after losing my father. It's just I have been and telling everybody, you know, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm and telling myself I should be over it. I should be done. And, you know, I should be healed by now and not being going through all this. And you know, it's just my life has been turned upside down and I feel like I should have it together better, but little do I know that the rituals that I'm trying to portray on Sunday, but bringing, like you said in your sermon, bringing home the um, anger and bitterness to my family and to my children uh, is the worst thing that I could possibly do. Absolutely. And I remember you telling people that was there in the audience to kind of do a pushing motion. That's just pushing the enemy away from your family and from, from your life. And um, I want you, as we kind of wrap up talking about this sermon is um, how I'm going to just bring it to, you can tell me and our listeners can, can put it in their lives as well, but how can I not be a Saul for my Jonathan? You know, Jonathan was slayed to save Saul's face. Yeah. And I want you to kind of talk about the importance of, I mean, you had a, um, a tweet, from 2014, my wife shared with me a couple of weeks ago that talked about fathers going to church. And, yes. you know, that's that's still going viral to this very day. Uh, a quote or a quote tweet from what I think it was 2014. But I want you mm -hmm. to kind of talk about the importance of the of praying for your children and how we cannot be a, a Saul to our Jonathan. Well, uh, it's that, that you mentioned that tweet, I think I know which one that is. Uh, that actually was a statistic on the front page of the Promise Keepers website for years. I don't think it's there anymore. I don't even know if they have a website anymore. But, but uh, I, I remember that. Now, I might be off 1%, but it won't be by very much. Uh, basically, the statistic was very uh, stirring to me, very striking that if a child leads the way in their family coming to church, it's a kid coming to Sunday school and, you know, they may drag their mom and dad there once in a while. If a child leads the way in coming to church, 3% of those families end up in church. If a mom or a wife leads the way, it's something like 13% of those families end up in church. That one, I'm not quite sure, but it's, it's somewhere there. If a father leads the way, a dad leads the way in uh, serving God and bringing his family to church, something like 93% of those families end up in church. 
So your influence as a dad and as a husband is, is massive. And I, I'm making a broad assumption here, and it's not a chauvinist assumption, but I'm just assuming because of who you are and the reach of your podcast, that probably the majority of your listeners are men like you that are in ministry. There would be some ladies that listen, obviously, but but I'm, I'm making a, a fairly good assumption, I think, here that a lot of your uh, listeners are, are men who are in ministry, and probably the demographic is, is younger like you versus older like me. Uh, the decisions that you make right now um, to, to balance, you never get balance, uh, ministry is always a back and forth. It's like a, 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 a seesaw. Uh, it, it, it tips one way, it tips another way. Your goal is not to achieve perfect balance. Your goal is to uh, keep God in the center at all times and, and to, to let him touch every area, not just your Sunday uh, life, not just your church ministry, but your home life as well. And to build those relationships. Saul's biggest problem to me was that he was all about image. As long as everybody thought Saul was in control, you, you know, you, you referenced it. Uh, you know, there's that incident where Jonathan, Saul's given this big command. Well, Saul is, he's empty. He's not empty headed. He's smart. He's the king of Israel. He's empty hearted. Uh, he has nothing real in there. And so it's all about image. That's why he wants Samuel to come with him to make a sacrifice. And, you know, that, that's so important. He's, he's got to show off in front of the army. But then there's the situation where, you know, Saul gives this big, super spiritual sound and command. Nobody's, we're fasting today. Nobody's going to eat today. Jonathan hasn't heard that. He dips his staff in honey and tastes it. And, and so Saul is ready to kill his son because... Jonathan didn't portray the right image. I think that is so critically important. That's where Saul went wrong with his family. He had he was wrong with elders. He was wrong with the politician, Abner. He was wrong in not having that sincere, young worshiper, David, at his table. But when you talk about family, he was all about image. As long as he looked good to everybody else, um, he thought he was good. And that's where he, he ended up fracturing forever that relationship with Jonathan. The only time Jonathan and Saul were united, David wrote in his, in his uh, lament, was when they were united in death. They were divided all through Jonathan's young adult years, and then they're united again in death. Um, it, it's really important to invest in those relationships they are as important as any relationship you, you have at church, any relationship you have in ministry. And in fact, I, I would say that your family relationships are better if you've got good ministry relationships and vice versa. Don't, don't be, and I, I'm talking to you, but I'm talking to everybody else here. Don't be hanging out with people that are critical of your pastor, uh, critical of your church. Don't hang out with people that mock the moving of the spirit. Don't hang out with people that, uh, that, that mock and malign our holiness lifestyle. And they're always on the edge. I don't care who they are or who their parents are or, or where they come from. Uh, I, I've got more respect for what God has privileged me to be part of. He's honored me by allowing me to be an apostolic. He's honored me by allowing me to be in ministry. 
I don't have time for people that just kind of tear down and mock. And they've always got these, these questions that are more than questions. You know, the reason they question everything is because really they're interested in digging it down and, and pulling it down. I'm not interested in that. I thank God for our elders. I am not interested in undermining the foundation they gave. Uh, I can take what they gave me and I can adapt it for today, uh, but I am not going to undermine it. And, and so I, I think that the people you surround yourself with, you got to remember you're surrounding your wife with those people. You're surrounding your kids with those people. Um, you're, you're, if you pull people, if you're in leadership or you're in ministry and you pull the wrong people around your table, it affects everybody else that's good that you've invited around your table. It may not poison them, but it could make other people question them. You know, it's like even question your judgment for having them at your table. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so my table is, is sacred to me. I, I had one uh, man, if I, if I called his name, you, you would know him. Most of your listeners that have uh, United Pentecostal connections, they would, they would instantly know who he is. I had one man come to me immediately after that message that, that uh, day. And he was weeping profusely. And he said to me, he said, Raymond, I don't get to choose my table. In his particular position in ministry, so many of the people that surrounded him, they were put on his table by other factors. Maybe they were voted into a position or whatever. And he said, I don't get to choose my table. He was distraught. But for those of us that do get to choose our table, there, uh, you know, the old statement is true. I know it gets blasted every once in a while, but it's still true. Uh, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. That's so important, uh, especially like you, when you're, you've got a young family coming up. Um, that's so important. Your friends, they, they, the people you bring around that table, they impact everything you are and everything you do. And they may just impact eternal things in your life. So as we're wrapping this up, we usually give um, our guest the, the final word and kind of what's what's been on their heart. But I, if you don't mind, I'd kind of like to direct your final word if you don't Please. mind. That's, that's great. Uh, uh, so there's something that is going on with my generation. Um, you know, I, I don't live in a world where my generation uh, mapped something out, started plowing a field, planting it, and then wait for um, the harvest to come. I'm, I'm reaping the benefits for, from yes. those that have done that before me. And I right. thank God for those, for those men. But it's, it's caused the generation that I'm a part of, and even the generation that's behind me, I see it as well, um, are not as hard laborers because we had that done for us already. Yes. And so we're just walking in their blessings. And I'm afraid of what we're going to do is we're walking in our prior minister's uh, blessings because of what they've sown into our movement that I'm going to absorb all of this. And without replanting something for those behind me, can you talk a little bit um, about um, self-promotion and the importance of keeping um, the main thing, the main thing and keeping your heart in line with what God's trying to do, uh, because I'm afraid of we're going to have a generation of my daughters that is completely ignorant to the fact of what our forefathers did. Uh, COVID took 
Sunday school away from my daughter. Oh, it, it was horrid. Yep. It's, it's taken, um, seeing before COVID my, my daughter would run into my pastor's arms and say, let's go to your office because mm-hmm. my pastor wanted his office to be a place of, um, assurance, a place yes. of peace and not yeah. of you're in trouble. You're going to the pastor's office. Yeah. He wants people to go into that office as a place of comfort. And yep. she's lost that because she didn't get to see that for a year. And you're right. still battling it right now is what you were telling me before. And like, well, not as much as you were, but, uh, you know, still to some still got a lot of restrictions. And and so I want to to talk to the to my, for you to talk about my generation, because you are just talking about how the demographic it is a younger demographic. I think uh, I think it was 70 percent of our listenership is between the age of 18 and 35. Yeah, there you go. And and that is a um, huge number. That's a huge percentage. And I want you to talk to my generation and, and kind of just inject healing almost into and, and a reality and, and, you know, just kind of a word of encouragement almost. Well, let me start on the downside of that. One of the most frightening things in scripture to me is, uh, you know, you you end the book of Joshua and they've conquered the promised land and divided up the land and everything is wonderful. And you flip one page, and you open up the book of Judges and within the first couple of chapters, what you see is that the children of Israel served God um, throughout Joshua's generation. And they served God throughout the generation of the elders that outlived Joshua. But then a third generation arises, and the Bible specifically says they didn't even know the Lord, and they didn't even remember the things that he had done. So in two generations, uh, God's people, Israel, they lose everything. They and, and, and here's the parallel, and this wasn't original with me. I've preached it, but uh, I think Bruce Wilkinson, uh, he had a company called Walk Through the Bible, did seminars everywhere, and he wrote a book, and I can't remember the title of it. I, originally, it was called The Three Chairs, I think. And he talked about these three generations. You know, Joshua's generation, they lived the stories. Joshua was there when Moses did a bunch of these miracles and he saw God provide to the wilderness and he, he saw that. He saw the Red Sea part and he, he, he saw the glory on Mount Sinai and, and all of that. Then the, the next generation arises and where they made their fatal mistake is they could tell you the stories of the elder generation, but they didn't live those stories. They, they, they became like historians in their museum of telling the stories. And then their kids raise up and they don't even know the stories. They don't even know God. And the Bible says they serve pagan gods. So that's the book of Judges. You see the same thing happen. We were talking about Saul. Well, skip down a generation. David is a man after God's own heart. David kills the giant. David uh, conquers the city of Jerusalem. David sets up this kingdom. It's, It's wonderful and glorious. Solomon, he knows all of that. And Solomon starts out good. In fact, Solomon is the wisest and wealthiest man who ever lives. His generation is abundantly blessed. But toward the end of it, what he does is he takes this heritage and he intermarries with pagan wives and and, and he makes all these agreements and treaties with, with pagan nations. And so he takes what he's been passed, 
but he adds some paganism. He adds some worldliness into it. And then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the kingdom splits in his day and he loses it. He loses most of the kingdom. He loses 10 tribes worth of the kingdom. God spoke to Solomon when he was, um, or to, to uh, yeah, to Solomon and said, because you've done this, because you've intermarried and you've brought all this worldliness in, I'm going to tear the kingdom from you. But I won't do it in your generation because of your father, David. I will do it in your son's generation. So this is amazing to me, Brother Tony. Solomon survived. His kingdom was prosperous, but not because of his effort. It was because of what you said. It was because of the elders that came before. Because of David, Solomon was permitted to hold on to his kingdom. But because of what Solomon did in mixing worldliness and godliness, the kingdom was lost in the next generation. So that parallel, book of Judges, Solomon's life, that tells me that there's enough residual anointing left behind by a generation to get us through one more generation, but not two. And so at my age and stage in life, I think the thing that concerns me is, am I just a curator in a historical museum of Pentecost telling the stories of the elders and, 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 and you know, serving the God of my parents and my elders? Or do I really have this for myself? Because the next generation depends on our relationship with God. Your daughter your son to, to be, their, their relationship with God is not directly connected to your dad. It's directly connected to you. So it's possible to fumble the ball in that center generation. That's why I get very concerned when I hear young leaders um, very casually and callously talk about some of the convictions that our elders held so firmly uh, you know, there's a lot of pressure from the world to question everything, to doubt everything, and even to mock and malign everything. And once in a while, I see that infecting some of our younger leaders. And their attitude has almost become, well, prove it to me. Prove it to me. Give me chapter and verse, chapter and verse. You know, if the elders believed it and taught it, and it was so important to them that it defined their generation, here's the way I feel about that. If it was that important to them and they gave us everything we have, we pastor churches that we didn't start. We, we lead ministries that didn't start with us. The, the Bible expression is, you live in houses that you didn't build and you uh, tend fields that you didn't plant and, and, mm -hmm. and, and you drink from wells that you didn't dig. That's the biblical expression. Well, that's all of us in this generation. If it was that important to them and they gave us this, then I am not going to drop that ball in my generation. Uh, I know there's pressure from the world, but I'm willing to resist the pressure from the world and be thought a little bit odd if I can hold on to the fervency and the passion. We started this, this uh, uh, podcast with the words real and genuine. Well, my goodness, that sure defines the generation that gave birth to you and to me. So I want to hold on to that because 
my kids and now my grandkids, their relationship with God, it doesn't depend on my great uncle Leonard who got the Holy Ghost 100 years ago in December. It depends in a major part on me and the same for you and the same for everyone that's listening to us today. Absolutely. You know, I, um, my grandmother's mother was the first person uh, baptized in Jesus name and her in the, in the community of which my dad pastored. Mm -hmm. So it was my grand, great grandmother, my grandmother, my mom and my dad, my sister is still there and my sister's daughter is still there. And, you know, so it's just so many generations and I just always want to be careful because I, I've heard uh, the stories that my grandma would tell me of how her mother would take all seven of them kids to church yeah. and knowing that when she come home, her husband would throw all of her stuff out on the lawn, would, would beat her within an inch of her life and say, if you ever go back to that Pentecostal church, I'll kill you the next time. Mm -hmm. And you know what she did on that next Sunday? Yeah. Took all seven of them yeah, kids yeah, to yeah. church, knowing what she was going to come home to. And I am wanting to make sure that on Sunday morning, whenever our alarm clock goes off, that we get up and, you know, I have to get there. <laughs> I'm going to tell myself I'm a part of our music department. I have yeah. to get there uh, at about 745. And every Sunday I just, oh, why do I have to do this? I know and little do I remember or forget that my grandmother had to fight for her life for what I want to complain about. Yeah. And so I just want to make sure that all of our brothers and sisters that are listening to this, you know, we hold on to the steadfast truth that we have, that we're blessed to have, that those yes, people before us got to hear. But Brother Woodward, I've taken up a lot of your evening today, but thank you so much for sitting down with us. Um, you did say the word controversial a couple minutes ago, and I want to say something controversial. <laughs> no doubt. Um, old Dutch ketchup potato chips are awful. <laughs> Is that, I, you is know that what? true or false? I have no comment at all. So <laughs> I but have no comment I, at all. That and uh, the all-season chips, they were awful. We got those as a gift when we went to Winnipeg. I was That's so excited funny. to try them, and I could not close them quick enough That's once I got too them funny. open. And I told Stacey Gaddy that actually as we were ending her podcast as well, and she wanted me to delete the podcast. She didn't even want me to put it out. She <laughs> said, you ruined it right there. There but, you go. Yeah, she's got a little bit too much Canadian still left in her. Yeah. Well, uh, thank Americans, you, so you guys just do the normal flavors. In Canada, everything's a, a, a potato chip flavor. So that's There you doing. go. Brother Woodward, thank you for being the best part of our podcast. Bro, we couldn't we couldn't imagine having somebody of your caliber oh on our goodness. podcast. But it's thank you so much for taking your time to be with us today. It's an absolute honor, and I, uh, I thank you for doing it's valuable to talk about these things guys you've been listening to the crucial conversation podcast <laughs>